the urgency of normal folks do nothing but talk about COVID. It's COVID, 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 COVID. So my advice to them is, if you really want to convince people that things are back to normal, stop talking about it. To support the show, become a patron. We do two episodes a week. This is the free one. If you'd like to get access to our weekly bonus episode that comes out every Monday, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I'm joined by our returning guest, Dr. Jonathan Howard. Dr. Howard is a neurologist and a psychiatrist based in New York and the author of the book Cognitive Errors and Diagnostic Mistakes, a Case-Based Guide to Critical Thinking in Medicine. For more than a decade, Dr. Howard has also been doing pro-vaccine advocacy and working to try to communicate and write about how to counter the ways that good pharmaceutical interventions can be undermined rhetorically. Jonathan, welcome back to the death panel. Thanks, as always, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Always nice to have you back. So we're seeing a lot of reports that pediatric COVID vaccinations are stalled out. According to one Kaiser Family Foundation report that I'm sure we'll discuss at more length, as of July 20th, only 2.8% of children under the age of five in the United States have had at least one vaccine dose. And according to the CDC, just 30% of kids in the U.S. ages 5 to 11 are fully vaccinated. But the fact of the matter is that we are not seeing much from the Biden administration other than repetition of the usual talking points that you should go get vaccinated or admonishing people for not being vaccinated. And we certainly haven't seen any big activity or new programs to try and get shots in arms, even at the level of the very incomplete and pharmacy-driven approach that we saw in the adult vaccination push in 2021. And so today, we wanted to talk to you about some of the figures that are stepping in to sort of fill that narrative void. People like Vinay Prasad and the Urgency of Normal crowd who I think it's safe to say have unfortunately been using this moment of a very slow, stalled rollout to cast a lot of doubt on the need for kids to get vaccinated at all. So you have been someone who has worked for many, many years pre-pandemic to teach people how to see through the sort of fake logic of anti-vaxxers. And during the pandemic, you've been someone who has written on this extensively for places like science-based medicine As well as um, you've written about the phenomena that we've covered a lot on the show as well, which has been this sort of pervasive and persistent narrative that portrays children as sort of uniquely safe from COVID. And we've really appreciated all of the work that you've done to fight against that framing. And the last time we had you on the show, uh, it was a patron episode, and it was before vaccines were available for children under five years old. It was in February. And uh, we were sort of talking about this this way that, you know, pro you, you sort of we called them pro COVID doctors then and the way that they were using data to try and misrepresent the total picture of what was going on with COVID and kids. 
Yep. You know, don't get me wrong. I, I do want to say that that bad, severe outcomes are extremely rare in children. Uh, the problem is rare outcomes add up when you multiply it by the 75 million children that are in America. So if something bad happens to one in 10,000 children multiplied by 750 million kids, you don't even have to say theoretically that would add up. That has added up. Um, the, the COVID death toll for children, it's its a little bit debatable depending on sort of which CDC website you, you look, but it's over a thousand for sure. Uh, the CDC uh, COVID data tracker puts it at 1,700, which I think in two years, which I think normal people think of that many dead children as a lot. Um, and death is not the only bad app. Been around 140,000 hospitalizations. Um, maybe some of those were incidental COVID. You know, there's all these sort of techniques to try to minimize th these sort of numbers. But even if it's just 100,000, that's a lot. And about 20% of those kids go to the ICU. About 5% need to be intubated. So again, bad outcomes in kids are, are, are very rare, but it adds up, I think, to a significant number of children who've been affected by this virus. Well, and I think the thing is that when I think of this argument of like, well, children are sort of impervious to COVID, I, I always think of it particularly in the way that it's used towards ends that sort of downplay the importance of vaccinating children. Um, I think of the line sort of best exemplified in the Emily Oster piece in The Atlantic from 2021, which was your unvaccinated child is like a vaccinated grandma. And so it's, you know, it's part of it is, I think, when we talk about the ways that, um, you know, COVID in children is minimized, it's it's not, you know, people accuse us of saying, um, of like trying to, you know, sow fear and, and inflate the risks, but it's really not about that. As you're saying, these are risks that happen in rare occurrences you know, children do not get sick and die at the rate that uh, older people do. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't vaccinate children from COVID-19. And I think there's been all these sort of uh, logical leaps that we've seen where one minimizing argument kind of builds on the next. And it's like a, a row of dominoes um, kind of rushing forward where you, you sort of see the anti-mask advocacy, the anti-vaccine advocacy all being driven by, um, you know, these other narratives where they're all sort of built on um, a complex web of just slightly shifting the perspective of how you understand very basic facts. Like, as you're saying, you know, 1,700 children dying in two years, that's a lot of children. Yeah, and you could say this about anything that kills children. So the number one killer of children these days, tragically, I think, is guns. Um, but the odds of any individual child being shot to death is extremely low. So does that mean we shouldn't take any effort to try to curtail gun deaths? None at all. Should we not have airbags in cars? Should we not have fences around pools? So you can you can use this argument, children are at low risk for anything that affects children more or less, thank God. Um, I think what best illustrates the idea that people who oppose children's vaccines are not making scientific good faith arguments are to see how these their arguments against vaccinating children have evolved over the years. Or the mm -hmm. year. It's been one year basically. So in twenty What is time under COVID time? Yeah. So in 2021, all of these doctors who I write about, Tracy Hogue, Marty McCary, Vinay Prasad, 
they were all saying children do not need COVID vaccines uh, because COVID was going away. So Marty mm-hmm. McCary famously predicted that we would have herd immunity in April 2021. Then he did say we did have herd immunity in May of 2021. Um, and so he said children don't need vaccines for that reason. Um, Vinay Prasad on May 8th, 2021, sent out the following tweet. The vast majority of kids recover quickly from SARS-CoV-2. True. And after all adults are vaccinated, their risk of COVID will decline precipitously. It's okay to acknowledge that COVID-19 is not an emergency for kids. So they thought COVID was going away in 2021. Kids don't need vaccines. Fast forward to today. What is their main argument? There's several, but what is their main argument? One of them that, that kids do not need vaccines is They've already had COVID. So essentially, yeah. you know, one year ago, uh, COVID's going away. They don't need vaccines. Now, uh, they've already had it. Kids don't need vaccines. And then for two years, you have all these new rules that nobody ever had before, and they're incredibly disruptive. And, and three quarters of kids got COVID anyway, even though you disrupted lives so much that parents have to quit jobs. And now you're saying the vaccine is gonna save you, like the vaccine is coming as if it's gonna save. So you can see the one consistent thing there is kids don't need vaccines. When COVID rates were low, kids don't need vaccines. After they've already had it, kids don't need vaccines. Without any self-reflection of did my false predictions that COVID is going away play any role in, in creating this mass immunity in, in children? Because they're right. Probably 75, 80, 90 percent of kids have had COVID at, at this point, um, which I will discuss is not a good reason not to use pediatric vaccines. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the, so the last time we had you on, it was in February. We were sort of waiting for vaccines for children under five to be authorized under an emergency use authorization from the FDA. Now that that's happened, um, they were authorized as of June 18th. And children between the ages of six months and five years of age are now eligible for vaccination. But as the Kaiser Family Foundation reported last week, vaccination rates have already peaked in this uh, youngest age group. And overall, basically, uh, compared with how things were going for 5 to 11-year-olds who were eligible in November of 2021, things are far below where 5 to 11-year-olds were in the same point um, in their eligibility. And I think this is really worrying, right? Because what uh, you just laid out, right, sort of drawing out these arguments over time, right, I think you sort of are seeing right now this exponential, there's clearly an exponential impact of not only, I think, deprioritization, but almost it's like everyone that wanted the under five vaccine got it right away. And we're seeing this huge drop off right now. And in the face of that drop off, right, you have all of these people who've been working really hard to push this message for a while now, really doubling down on this. Yeah. So I, I don't think they're all to blame. I mean, it, no, it, absolutely um, not. Yeah. Many complex reasons, but they're, they're part following of the a trend. Yeah. Like they're part of a picture. So so let me go through and say why I think, you know, their arguments are, are, are not very good. Um, so, so let me start with the natural immunity one. So first of all, the phrase natural immunity is a little bit misleading uh, because the immunity induced by vaccines is completely natural. So uh, it, it's better called virus induced immunity, but just to keep things simple, so everyone knows what I mean, I, I will call it natural immunity. So l- let me start with a point of agreement. Um, if a two-year-old had Omicron in May, 
they're probably not at high risk for a reinfection or serious consequences of a reinfection, certainly in the short term. So I don't want to say natural immunity is useless and it's nothing. And and just anecdotally, we're not seeing children coming to the hospital, I don't think, with their second and third reinfections massive over and over again. But if 90%, let's say 90% of American children have had COVID, that means 10% haven't. And that's still millions of kids. So that's a lot of children uh, who have not had COVID who are at some risk of a bad outcome. Uh, so that's problem one. I think the biggest problem with this idea of natural immunity is that all of these people who are not pediatricians, they have zero real-world responsibility for taking care of kids, neither do I, full disclosure, um, but they forget one simple thing, which is 8 million kids have been born in the United States, give or take, since the pandemic started. Right. 10,000 kids are going to be born today without natural immunity. And babies, this is something else they will not tell you, babies under the age of one are by far far the highest risk of death from COVID, okay? Mm -hmm. And so we have an opportunity to protect these children once they turn six months. And I think what happened with measles pre-vaccine illustrates our future. And I don't think any of these guys know this because their interest in vaccines is only one years old. It came on all of a sudden. <laughs> um, and so they don't know this sort of history. But if you look at what happened with measles pre-vaccine, there was a big spike every year and then a big drop every year. And what would happen is a new crop of kids would be born. It would find them. There would be 800,000 cases. They would all get it. Then there'd be this temporary herd immunity and that would drop back down to 200,000 cases. And then the next year it would be another 800,000 cases. So it's these giant spikes and waves as, as measles uh, found a, a new generation of newborns uh, or children, at least, to infect. And I think with these new contagious variants, which are up there with measles, I think that is the future that COVID is going to have for American children. And how many of these 4 million children that are born in the year, uh, every year, are going to die of COVID? It's like two, one to 200 Two to three hundred. I mean, not not a, a huge number, but um, I think that's worth vaccinating kids to try to prevent that. I mean, that adds up, right? Um, you know, and so really, what we're debating here is how many children should die or suffer for lack of a vaccine. I think that number should be zero, right? Well, and that's what really worries me when I see stuff coming out like this, this Kaiser family report where they say, well, there's this real drop off and um, there's a lot of problems with outreach in this demographic. And there's a lot of disinterest in, in getting this demographic vaccinated because of all the demographics, right? The six months to five year bracket is the one that should theoretically always have demand, right? Because as you're saying, babies are being born every day. And this is the one that you always have people aging up into eligibility for who were not eligible before. In my mind, you know, what we're seeing right now is I think a lot of people just don't um, they've really bought into this idea that the the vaccination component is not necessary. And some, I think, are really also perhaps convinced that perhaps the vaccination is worse than the COVID infection. And this is something that you've done a lot of work to try and untangle and like shine uh, light on what's actually going on. Do you do you mind sort of like explaining that claim that that potentially it's more dangerous, quote unquote, to vaccinate your kid than 
to sure. uh, let them get naturally infected. Because that's part of the natural infection argument is they're like, oh, well, you know, all these kids have been infection. Oh, and also perhaps it's superior in some aspect too. It's it's not, you know, totally um, benign. Right. So I think this has to do with how we evaluate choices. When, when, it, when a child is hurt by a, a medical product or a vaccine, we feel guilty. We feel responsible. We feel that we did something when there's some truth to that. Uh, it, but when a child is hurt by a virus, you think, oh, that's mother nature. It's an accident. And so it's not as bad. There's this sort of lack of intention there. And this is why all of these doctors brush off 1,700 deaths from kids as, oh, it's less than grandma. Um, But when it comes to children who have been hurt by these vaccines, which I'll discuss in a second, it's a catastrophe. It's it's just just a a catastrophe. And I want to be very clear about one thing. It really shouldn't be framed as, are you going to vaccinate children or not? It really should be framed as, when your child encounters COVID, because they will, Will they be vaccinated or not? Is your child going to have some protection from the vaccine when they encounter COVID as they invariably will? So let, let's talk about what the harms of the vaccines are. Um, and aside from the mundane ones of a fever and a sore arm, which I should say Dr. Vinay Prasad strenuously argued against vaccinating kids based on the idea that the vaccine would cause the fever a year ago. <laughs> um, but what really emerged, uh, aside from these sort of mundane things, is this vaccine myocarditis. So let's talk a little bit about that. So there's a few things that you need to know. Number one, it happens in almost exclusively men are boys between the ages of 14 and 25 or 15 and 25. So older teens and and, and young adult males. Um, That's point number one. And it happens after their second shot. It is probably much higher with Moderna than Pfizer. I think I said that wrong on the last podcast. Yes. (laughs) And up until just the other month, uh, all American children were getting Pfizer. And then the other things that you need to know is how often it happens. And there's a range here. Uh, Different studies have come to wildly different conclusions. So the highest that I've seen is about one in 2,700. And the lowest that I've seen, a study from Denmark, found no relation at all. Other studies, a big one from France, found a rate of about one in 50,000. A study of all the Norwegian or or Nordic countries uh, found a rate of about one in 20,000. So this this presents a very interesting opportunity is that doctors who want to scare people, as I think these doctors do, can just cherry pick. Mm -hmm. Because 20 studies that you can choose from. You can find whatever study you want to, uh, to, to, to support your hypothesis. So when Dr. McCary and uh, Dr. Hogue were writing about this to scare parents, they said the vaccine causes myocarditis at a rate of one in 2,700, forgetting that there's a dozen other studies showing much lower rates than that. Now, can I just stop you real quick? For, for people who don't know what myocarditis means, I think what it is is a little bit scary to parents, too. Can you explain? Uh, because I think that's part of the leverage that they employ here. Is it's it sounds scary? Yeah. So that was that. That was my 
That's what I was getting to. Sorry. Um, no, no, but I should, I should define it, yet, which I was not going to do. So thank you. It's, it's inflammation of the heart muscle. Right. And, you know, it can be a big deal. It, it, yeah, it, it, absolutely. It definitely, it definitely can be a big deal. Um, but, but getting back to the rate of it, it, it doesn't occur in young kids after the vaccines in age five to 11. There were like after 8 million vaccine doses, I, I think they had 11 cases in age children ages five to 11. So one out of half a million. And it's not even clear if that's above and beyond just the baseline uh, that children normally develop uh, myocarditis. So the frequency is a little bit unclear, but the clinical course of this is very clear. And the good news is that nearly all children do very well. They spend a couple of days in the hospital and almost all of them go home feeling fine. Now, I don't want to minimize it because it is a core belief of mine that anytime a child is hospitalized, it's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but catastrophic outcomes from this, I'm not aware of any child dying uh, from this. There have been a handful of reported deaths from around the world, mostly actually in people over the age of 50. And uh, Dr. McCary used that to scaremonger. He used one 22-year-old dying in Israel uh, as proof that babies could die of this as well, which is just uh, just wow. ludicrous. But you know, <laughs> nearly all studies show that children do just well. And the CD has followed, CDC has followed two to 300 of these children. And at about six months later, 80% of them are without symptoms. 20% of them have some symptoms, the most common being uh, anxiety and depression, which, which again, shouldn't be minimized. But uh, to me, it does not seem like a fate worse than death. Right. And, and certainly not relevant to vaccinating children under the age of five. Right. And, and I think one of the things that's abundantly clear as well is that one one of the things that we're seeing, right, is that there's a kind of imbalance because there was already, I think, an existing community of anti-vaxxers and an existing framework for this. And I think there was also an existing kind of complacency with engaging with it as well. Um, you know, I think a lot of the criticism of what some of this quote unquote advocacy that we've been talking about, you know, it's it's framed as, OK, this is misinformation and we have to name it as misinformation. But I appreciate you actually taking the time to really break down into very minute detail, much more detail than I would ever have the patience for to engage with these people because they're, you know, they're frustrating. Right. And when you challenge them, they call you crazy. And, you know, this it's it's a kind of never ending cycle. But I think one of the things that's a problem here is that we often, I think, are kind of used to anti-vaxxers just being like a part of the the fabric of society. And I think when we we talk about dealing with how to navigate, you know, the narratives that people who advocate to not vaccinate children for whatever reason put into the world and how that does scare parents. And there's so much information that, you know, parents are constantly inundated with that they are judged about. There is so much social pressure about what decisions you should be making about your children. This is like an incredibly, you know, complex dynamic and simply sort of calling out misinformation is is not enough to destabilize any of these dynamics, nor is any one aspect of it the sort of dominant piece. But I think it's really important to sort of understand really clearly what's going on, because for I think a lot of parents, they're under so much pressure. And it's actually very difficult to find a 
root away from the people like the Prasads and the Hogues who are so, and Marty McCary who are so willing to use these outliers for you know very specific rhetorical means. Yeah, and, and let me be clear: they don't call me crazy. They run away. They want nothing to do. <laughs> they want nothing to do with me. And, and all of these doctors that we've discussed um, are, are, are they have stellar credentials, and, and they're they're not obviously crazy. They're not like the anti-vaccine doctors who I used to discuss pre-COVID, uh, Kelly Brogan, Christian Northrup, uh, Suzanne Humphreys, Tony Bark. I don't know if even if those names mean anything to you, but these mm-hmm. are some of the, the sort of kooky COVID is a hoax pandemic type doctors. Mm-hmm. So these doctors mix good advice. Yes, grandma should get her vaccine. Absolutely. With bad advice, uh, children don't need vaccines, which I think actually uh, makes things worse. And, and they can speak in, in very convincing scientific language and just uh, they, they do a few things that the average person that really has no clue uh, of catching on. Um, so some of those things are just saying wrong information. So they've all said the flu kills uh, more children than COVID, even though COVID since the pandemic started has killed 1,700 kids and the flu 33. Uh, They never say those numbers, Mm -hmm. but the average person is going to be just completely uh, unprepared to to deal with that, just not have those numbers um, at their fingertips. And if I can go on sort of just discussing some of the other reasons that, that, that they say kids should not be vaccinated is they will say that the, the, that the, the trials of these vaccines were very small, the randomized controlled trials, and therefore they showed there was no evidence from the trials, and this is all true, that the vaccines prevented hospitalizations or the vaccines prevented death. And they feel that they really should have done much larger trials to demonstrate that effect. And then, mm-hmm. you know, that sounds very reasonable, right? How can right. you object? It sounds to- safe, right? It sounds like they're, they're calling for more safety. Right. So, I mean, how could you object to, to, to a larger trial? So I'll tell you why. So, so, <laughs> um, in the adult vaccine trials, I'm going to speak just about the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA trials. Um, the ones that were published at the very end of 2020, one person died in both of those trials. Okay, so you cannot look at those randomized controlled trials and show that the vaccine saves lives. What the study showed is that the vaccine prevented people from getting COVID. It's obviously not nearly as effective as it was in those trials. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but reasonable people thought, hey, if there's a vaccine that prevents people from getting COVID, it's probably going to stop people from dying of COVID. And their embrace of the ultra obvious led us to use these vaccines before we had any proof that they saved lives. And now we have a ton of proof. And what these doctors want done with children is to do a study of four or 100,000 or even a million children uh, in order to show that the vaccine saved lives. And they will say this was done with polio, which is true. Um, but there's a few key differences. Uh, things have changed a little bit since the 1950s. You would never, ever be able to enroll a million children in a vaccine trial, especially with all the fear mongering that these people have done. And as you just said, be, even though the vaccine's available in the market, a lot of people are not vaccinating their children. Uh, the last I read, about 300,000 children have been vaccinated. These doctors are calling for a trial where more children would be vaccinated in the trial 
to tell if the vaccine is safe and effective than have been vaccinated so far. Uh, so it, it's just sort of a ridiculous sort of thing. And carrying out a randomized controlled trial is really, really hard. So the protocol for the pediatric vaccine trial, it was about 200, 2,500 kids. I forget if that was the Pfizer or the Moderna, they each did one. But the protocol for that trial of 2,500 kids was 460 pages long, detailing everything about the trial, what to do if there's a side effect, how to store the blood samples, when children should be called in for visits, how to test them, all of these things. These things are extremely complex. They are extremely regulated. It, they're extremely hard to do. And they want to multiply the trial that was done by 500 times. You know, the results of that study would be done in the year 2030. <laughs> and at which point would be that, that useful. But they'll just tell parents it wasn't really studied. We have no evidence that it works, that it saves lives. Uh, and, and so it's just this very sort of deceptive uh, thing as if time is this unlimited luxury in the middle of a pandemic where tens of thousands of kids are getting COVID every single month. It, it, it's just ludicrous. Well, it's one of those things where the kind of trial that Prasad is proposing, right, something where you would need that the kind of system to be able to coordinate that level of enrollment for that many children in the United States with the state of Healthcare and access to healthcare is absolutely absurd. I mean, you would need something, you know, three times as robust as the current NHS system in the United Kingdom. I can't even imagine how much essentially waste they're advocating for in, instead of precaution in, in these frameworks. And it's frustrating because they, they frame it in terms of, well, this is a sort of issue of cost-benefit analysis. you got to be reasonable and you've got to weigh the very serious consequences, which, as you're saying, they overblow and they um, frame and things are cherry-picked. And also one thing that we've talked about in the past a lot, which is, you know, there's deliberate omission of data, omission mm -hmm. um, of very important points. Um, like, as you said, you know, people are not mentioning the fact that Many more children get much sicker from COVID than the flu. And, and there's these sort of frameworks that they set up, right, in, in order to always win at their cost-benefit analysis. It's like they are, um, you know, it's they've got a rigged game that they've set up, right? They're demanding reasonable cost-benefit analysis. The terms that they've laid out are designed to always rule in the favor of, you know, their advocacy, which is for this kind of... I don't know. It's almost like a, a brand building exercise that results in disastrous population level health consequences. Right. That goes back to what I was saying before about how in 2021, kids don't need the vaccine because it's going away. And now 2022, kids don't need the vaccine because they've all had it. Um, the one constant there is kids don't need the vaccine. And I will say even this whole discussion of flu and COVID is kind of silly because we should vaccinate children against both diseases. It's, it's right. not like we should just pick the, the murderous one uh, and, and only pick that. And COVID's toll on children. Uh, so so uh, another argument that they use uh, is that 
overselling the COVID vaccine will undermine trust in routine vaccination. So they have now, these doctors who had zero interest in this topic pre-COVID have now anointed themselves the champion of routine vaccinations for what they call more serious diseases, even though these more serious diseases have killed less children in my lifetime combined uh, than COVID has killed in the past two years. You know, when was the last time a child died of measles? The 1990s? When was the last time a child died of polio? You know, 1970s? Don't get me wrong. It's only vaccines that are keeping those diseases at bay. Uh, so Right. There was just a case of polio last week, yeah. right, in New York? Yeah. First one since the 70s. But the idea that they want to protect children against more serious diseases is ludicrous as they, under, as they undermine confidence in the COVID vaccine and all of the doctors and all of the institutions which are recommending the COVID vaccine. And COVID is what is circulating right now. So if I, if a parent was to come to me and say, Jonathan, I'm going to vaccinate my kid against one disease and one disease only, what should it be? I'd choose COVID in a heartbeat. And so would every other uh, doctor. I imagine. Um, certainly other diseases are more dangerous per child. I mean, I'd much rather have my child have COVID than diphtheria. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the odds of them getting diphtheria right now are vanishingly low. So COVID vaccines are by far the vaccine that are going to prevent the most suffering in children. There's no question about it. There was a survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation that came out this week Um, in which more than four out of 10 parents said they were not planning on vaccinating their kids. And what I found was so interesting is, you know, when they were asked what the reasons were, Kaiser Family Foundation summarized it uh, as follows, quote, when asked in their own words for the main reason why they will not vaccinate their eligible child under five, quote, right away, parents cite concerns about the newness of the vaccine not enough testing or research, concerns over side effects, and worries over the overall safety of the vaccines. Additionally, about one in 10 parents say they do not think their their child needs the vaccine or they are not worried about COVID-19. And it's so frustrating, right? Because you really see how, um, how, you know, all of this pressure really does work out in these very sort of specific contexts. I mean, we think about the pandemic in all of these very individual frameworks, but ultimately children are not in little bubbles off somewhere else or in their home somewhere. They're part of our communities. And, you know, I think a lot of the people who are minimizers do this weird kind of game of sort of rejecting that fact by saying, well, oh, but when you acknowledge that kids are part of the community, you're just calling them viral vectors or something. Mm -hmm. And it's it's frustrating because it's hard to see a way out of this constant back and forth and back and forth of sort of messaging against messaging when so much of their sort of salesmanship is about framing very ridiculous things as reasonable. Yeah. So the number of doctors who do not want to vaccinate children is two things, a few things, actually. They're, they're very, it's a very small number, um, which is good news. The bad news is they have big platforms. They're on Fox News. They have big social media followings. They're in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you know, Vinay Prasad has countless subscribers to his Substack and other uh, money-making upper opportunities. Uh, so, so they're a small minority. And, and I just want to stress that, like me, none of them work with children. So they are completely sheltered from the consequences of their, wor- of their, of their words. Right after they all said COVID was going away, 
uh, in, in spring of 2021, last year, the Delta wave hit. And that was the peak of hospitalizations then. And was there any self-reflection? There was not. Uh, then the Omicron wave hit. That tripled the Delta wave. At the, de at the peak of the Delta wave, about 300 kids were going to the hospital every day, which is about where we're at now. During the Omicron wave, about 900 or close to 1,000 children were going to the hospital every single day. And there was zero sort of self-reflection. Instead, there was more minimization. Uh, as I think we discussed last time, Marty McCary called it Omicold or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, or he called it nature's vaccine. Uh, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, almost if he was doing PR uh, yeah. for, for, for the virus. Yeah, he's like three vaccine or three uh, COVIDs in a trench coat. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, you know, Vinay Prasad was saying, oh, hospitalizations are down two thirds compared to Delta. And again, this really shows how you can sort of manipulate uh, statistics. So it, it was true that a child with Omicron was probably in a little bit less trouble than a child with Delta, though that may not have been true for the youngest children. But because everyone got it, many more children were going to the hospital. It's like comparing rabies and COVID. Yes, I'd rather have my child get COVID than rabies, but I'd rather have, uh, you know, them be nearby someone with rabies. Uh, not really, that poor person's going to die, but there's only five rabies deaths per year in the United States, if that. And obviously, you know, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of COVID deaths for probably the rest, foreseeable future, not the rest of our lives, I hope. But um, so, so there's, there's, there's sort of stress, these sort of misleading statistics uh, to, to hide the fact that their predictions that COVID was going away were horrible. And there's, there's just no introspection to say, boy, did I, did I, did I mess up a, a year ago? There's none of that. I think in some instances, I, I recall you writing that this sort of process of, of having these claims that they make and then sort of moving the goalposts and then making new claims and then moving the goalposts and picking and shifting evidence as they see fit is really this kind of moment of um, the the most important thing I think you've charged to a lot of these people seems to be uh, asserting that they're right, not necessarily being right. And that it's this constant process of sort of what is the evidence that supports the argument that I've sort of staked my brand on almost. Right. Exactly right. And, and they're so concerned with making sure unvaccinated children get COVID uh, I have a future essay on this, that there's a very interesting question that they- What a have. life's work, you know? I made it my life's work to make sure children got infected with the novel virus. It's, 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 it's true, but shocking. Um, is essentially then say, what, what age do you think children should get vaccinated for COVID? So let's say there's a newborn today. Okay, so it, you know they're eligible when they're six months. You don't think that they should get vaccinated then. Okay, what about when they're, even though that's when they have the most risk, what about when they turn five? No, not then. What about when they become a teenager? No, that's when they have the highest risk of myocarditis. When does that risk fall off when they're 25? Okay, so let's agree. Every, you know, people should start getting vaccinated when they're 25. Of course, a newborn today, uh, by the time they're 25, will likely have encountered the virus a dozen times by then. So this is what I, just to reemphasize what I was saying before, it's really not a choice to vaccinate your kid or not. It's a choice of when they get COVID, 
or when they encounter the virus, are they going to encounter the virus uh, when they're vaccinated or not? And what evidence do we have? Since I just got done saying that there's not a lot of evidence or any evidence from the randomized controlled trials, what evidence is there? Uh, and there's decent evidence from, from the CDC, from Singapore study was just published, uh, that the vaccine is very good at, at not preventing the disease. It's, it's okay at preventing COVID. It's actually very similar to adults. Um, that is pretty good at, it, it's middling actually, at preventing COVID, uh, but it's very good at preventing the most severe outcomes. Um, and so it's just another opportunity to put things in your favor uh, for the kid. And, and I'll say one other thing about randomized controlled trials is we don't know anything about the virus from a randomized controlled trial. So when you, someone tells you older people are at higher risk than younger people, that person is not making the claim based on a randomized controlled trial. We have run zero trials, randomized controlled trials of the virus. So everything that you've learned about the virus, everything, uh, has come from observational studies. So these doctors love to crap on observational studies, um, but they teach us a lot and they allow us to study things. They're, they're, they're not flawless. A lot of, there's a lot of bad observational studies, but this is how we know that smoking causes cancer. Uh, there's never been a randomized controlled trial of smoking. So the, the idea that only information, the, the only valid information can come from massive randomized controlled trials uh, is ridiculous, as they know, because they've talked about these vaccine side effects, which have not come from randomized controlled trials, constantly. Vinay <laughs> Prasad's name is linked with vaccine myocarditis, the way Michael Jordan's name is linked with basketball. Like, you just cannot separate the two. They just go hand in hand. And he has devoted countless podcasts, and articles to this vaccine side effect, while at the same, which again, I don't want to blow off, but it's not as bad as death. But when children die of COVID, he's like, eh, grandma has it worse. When they get this vaccine myocarditis, oh my God, uh, this is a travesty. We're, we're destroying a generation of young men. You know, it's not quite that dramatic, but, but, but. Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't think that was a, a gross mischaracterization of his right, drama, actually, to be honest. I mean, you're talking about three quarters of all children suffered these restrictions for years. They're masking all this bullshit, okay? And three quarters of them got COVID anyway before you could even get them the vaccine. You would be better off had you never placed a restriction on them and you allow them to live. That's ridiculous, that's unbelievable. An unbelievable penalty that they have paid um, that is not commensurate with the risks they faced. It is not the virus doing this. It is human beings creating rules that have crippled us, crippled ours, crippled schools, quarantine policies that we created. I retract my defense uh, of Vinay Prasad. Uh, no, he, he, you're right, he's extremely dramatic. Um, yeah, insufferably. Um, but, but, but in inverse proportion to the frequency of the mm -hmm. condition and the severity. Uh, so I think most people would say that death is a worse fate than temporary uh, heart inflammation. And I, I'm sure if you sat him down and asked him that, he would say the same. Uh, but it's clearly not how he's talked about this because he has not devoted a single podcast to children lost to COVID. Why not? Why not just do a podcast on here are some of the children who have been lost to COVID or uh, a podcast on any one of the dozen studies 
showing that the vaccine prevents severe outcomes. And even if it's not good with Omicron, it's already prevented a lot of severe outcomes. It's already done a lot of good. There's a lot of children walking around right now who had a mild case of COVID because they were vaccinated, who without it would have been hospitalized or even worse. And we don't know who they are, but they're out there. Right. And I mean, I think the thing that really frustrates me is that we, I think what we have right now is we've clearly seen a prioritization of a vaccine only response that's not just standard in the United States, but it's pretty standard all over the world. And vaccinating children is a key part of that, right? And some of these people have been key players in supporting rhetorically the vaccine-only response. They are people who part of their brand is not just vaccine myocarditis. It's also trashing NPIs, making fun of people who mask, antagonizing people who are um, medically vulnerable, who talk about their experiences with long COVID or who talk about their fears of, of feeling, you know, either alienated from society or put in a position that's just absolutely impossible with work, with them being asked to take on all of this extra risk for the convenience of um, of people like Vinay Prasad, who feel that there is sort of some magic lost that's more important than protecting people at a population level from COVID. And it's the same sort of, I don't even know what to call it. It's like a selective logic. It, what, what explains this? Because it, Vinay Prasad was a smart, rational guy. Uh, he wrote this book, uh, co-wrote it with a guy named Adam Sifu called Ending Medical Reversal, which is... I'd have to reread it to make sure I still feel this way, but it's actually one of my favorite medical books. It's just about how kind of bad science and bad studies or doctors doing things without evidence will lead to, you know, doctors doing knee surgeries that don't work for 20 years before someone finally does a study that's showing that, that, that knee surgery doesn't work. And in 2017, when a doctor made uh, anti-vaccine comments about the flu vaccine, which also like the COVID vaccine is, not the best, you know, it's better than nothing, but it's not the best. Um, he called this doctor a quack. So, so, so what's changed? And, and, and I'm not really sure. I don't know these guys. I'm not a psychologist, but, uh, well, I'm not their psychologist, but, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I, I think that, um, my sense of things is this, that, that they, a lot of these guys who you've talked about, the G, Great Barrington Declaration folks, John Ioannidis, they sort of committed to a position two years ago, two and a half years ago, whatever, that that kids were, were, were sort of invulnerable and young people were kind of invulnerable. And for them to recommend vaccination now would be sort of a tacit admission uh, that they were wrong. And if you read some of their prior work on measles, for example, they have tweets out there like, yes, you know, measles killed some children in Samoa. This is unacceptable. You should absolutely vaccinate your child against measles. Uh, But fast forward to now where there's there's a disease killing three children, American children per day. And all you'll hear, oh, it's less than grandma. It wasn't studied properly. The vaccine can cause uh, adolescents, you know, or, or can cause myocarditis in adolescents. They all have natural immunity anyway. Uh, so, so you'll just get these arguments that they would never have made pre-vaccine. And they just sort of keep digging themselves into this hole, I think, because for, for VNA to Prasad to come out now and say, yes, you should vaccinate your children uh, would be going against almost everything he said for the past two years. 
And it wouldn't just be uh, devastating to his brand, although it would be devastating to his brand. It's just very hard to admit error. And one thing this pandemic has taught me is when you make a mistake, and I've made a couple in my articles, I've gotten some facts wrong. Um, Once I misattributed a quote to Jay Bhattacharya of the Great Barrington Declaration when it was another Dr. Bhattacharya, the only way to handle that error is to admit it openly and rapidly as quickly as possible. And I think that the, that the fact that they haven't done that, they're just keep, it's sunk costs. They just keep having to you know, dig deeper and deeper and deeper to where they're really not even making an argument now that the vaccine is more dangerous than the virus because that ship has sort of sailed. Really, their only argument is, eh, it won't help that many kids. What's the point? Just because. And I, I don't think I'm doing their, their argument uh, treating it unfairly. It's just not that many children will benefit. Right. No. And actually, this is in a way a phenomenon that we talk about on the show all the time and that I think my co-host Phil um, frames really well is this this kind of idea that you don't actually need a lot of coherence to justify things that um, support the current political economic reality. And I think part of what Vinay Prasad and and uh, the Great Barrington Declaration people and the urgency of normal people, we can't forget them because they're part of it as well. You know, part of it is is definitely, um, you know, sunk cost and not wanting to be wrong. But it, at the same time, their advocacy has done so much to to bolster a pandemic response that is very favorable to certain extractive dynamics of our political economy. I mean, when we did not want mask mandates, these are some of the first people to stand up and say, you know, this is not necessary. And here are all of the cherry picked reasons why. And fundamentally, over and over, they they are coming down on the side of um putting people in a position where they're going to have increasingly negative social determinants of health in their life. And they are people who claim to care about this stuff. By the way, a future column of mine, uh, maybe I'm sort of letting the cat out of the bag. I don't know how many people will listen to this also read my columns, but if they, if they listen to this beforehand, yeah, you'll get, it'll be a spoiler alert, um, is some advice for the urgency of normal people. Okay. Mm. Here's my advice. So in 2019, you'll probably remember this because you lived in New York City, but there was a, a measles outbreak here. Yep. So, you know, it was a serious thing. You know, 650 people got measles. I think about 50 people were hospitalized and mostly children, and some of them were, were, were very sick. Fortunately, there were zero deaths. But that outbreak ended, right? Like, like when was the last time that you heard anyone talk about that measles outbreak? Probably 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, My guess is most of your listeners probably haven't thought about it since if they heard about it at all. And so the fact that we don't talk about this anymore means we've accepted that things have gone back to normal, at least with regards to to, to measles. Um, The urgency of normal folks do nothing but talk about COVID. It's COVID, 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 COVID. So my advice to them is um, stop talking about it. If you really want to convince people that things are back to normal, model the behavior that you expect from others and talk about COVID as often as you do the 2019 measles outbreak because your constant utterances on COVID really undermine the message that things are back to normal. (laughs) So I will personally, I've sent my benchmark as I think things will be back to normal when Vinay Prasad and Tracy Hogue and Lucy McBride and all of those folks stop talking about COVID. When they're done, 
I'm done. Oh, well, I love that. I feel like that's a very polite way to say that uh, they should be uh, shutting the fuck up, which I agree well, with. It's, it's modeling the behavior. That exactly. They like from others, right? If they think things are normal, act like it, right? Right. Like, Stop talking I, about it. I, you don't see me talking about this 2019 measles outbreak all the time. <laughs> I'm not posting about it. I'm not talking about how to control it because it's over. It's done. Things are back to normal. So act like that. Uh, that that that's just my my free advice for those for for those folks. But it, it really just sort of shows. So I think they don't even really, in some deep way, they don't take themselves that seriously. Like I think that they know a trial of a million children is, is not feasible, and it's not really meant to be taken seriously. That's why they're not writing proposals to do these sorts of trials. They're not trying to get involved. It's just a way of sort of shifting the goalposts and fear mongering uh, even more. But I think if you were to really sit them down and say, okay, fine, let's do a trial of half a million children. Let's think about exactly how that would work. Um, And you would very soon realize that it would be impossible to get off the ground. And just to go back on the subject, um, these trials are much, much easier to say than do, uh, which is why none of these doctors have ever run one. Now, there was a trial of uh, hydroxychloroquine that the uh, NIH, the National Institute of Health, wanted to do in the early pandemic when everyone thought that was the cure. Uh, And they tried, they wanted to enroll 2,000 people. Uh, They enrolled 20, okay? one percent of their goal and the trial closed so this happens all the time that a, a very small trial two thousand people could only roll one percent and graveyards are littered with dead randomized controlled trials that looked really easy to do they looked great on paper uh but they're actually very hard to do and so that's why i say i don't think they take themselves seriously i don't i think if you actually sat them down and said Let's go through the mechanics of how this would work, um, how many children would have to be enrolled, how long it would last. Would we accept children who had been previously infected? How would that change things? Also, of course, in a pandemic, it's like totally different than any other disease that you're studying because the virus changes. So let's say we had done a a trial uh, of a million kids. We had started this uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic. We didn't have vaccines then, but just bear with me. and we had done a trial on the alpha variant and then the whatever came next, beta <laughs> variant, I don't really remember. Um, would that trial have any validity today? Of course not. So let's say we started a trial of a million children today. Would that trial have any relevance to whatever variants are going to be circulating in five years? Maybe, maybe. But it's, you know, it's, it's like we would have zero relevance. So it's just ridiculous to think that we can study these things in trials of hundreds of thousands or millions of children. But the ridiculousness is, is kind of the point. But the average person doesn't know that. The average person hears these and thinks the drug companies were greedy they didn't want to study these in large trials. Our regulators dropped the ball. They didn't care. They just wanted to get these products to market as soon as possible without knowing if they were safe and effective. So it's very uh, compelling rhetorical technique that if you just stop and think about it for a second, it falls apart. Well, I understand why it's hard because I do feel like that there are some of these sort of classic frameworks that they use that do play into certain you know, truths that people feel very materially in their own lives. And I think you see this very common. um, This is very common within like the chronic illness community where you see people who 
uh, stop taking their medication because they've started following the medical medium protocol or they've started, you know, uh, drinking celery juice instead of taking um, mm-hmm. their Imuran. And, and, and this is the kind of thing that, you know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity, right, to to basically step in where we have all of these moments where our systems and institutions fall short and let people fall through the cracks, right? Part of one of the situations that we're facing now, I think, would be a lot less of, uh, we'd been, be in a lot less trouble with people like Vinay Prasad and all of these minimizers if people had better access to primary care, right? And these are the kinds of things that we talk about that obviously, like, as you're saying, this is like beyond the scope of where you're going. But, you know, it's, it's frustrating, too, because they are creating these contexts, where they'll they'll advocate for okay you know we need to keep schools open and we need to not put any money towards ventilation we need to put all of that towards learning loss or we need to deal with all of this myocarditis and put all of this money into a gigantic study and study this well you know if they're so worried about young boys getting myocarditis maybe they should worry about how many children don't have consistent access to pediatricians in this country or how many people once they transition out of pediatric care don't have access to primary care as a young adult or as an adult and and that's the kind of thing that just really gets me so frustrated is i think that these people not only do they mislead people but they take the the pandemic conversation and they take it out of a, a sort of perspective that gives you an opportunity to talk about what's going on at the level of social determinants of health, at the population level. And it puts it all into this individual narrative about everyone making their own little individual choices. And fundamentally, you know, the pandemic is not about individual choice and we cannot personal responsibility our way out of this. And that's ultimately what people like Vinay Prasad are advocating for, even in their sort of critiques where they're saying, oh, you know, I'm I'm coming for all those uh, woke mobs who are trying to make everyone vaccinate their kids. It's just, you know, it's frustrating, too, because it takes up all of this energy and all of this time to to combat. And it takes all of this work, as as you've just walked us through, um, to really pick apart like what's actually going on here. Yeah, the, the school closure issue really bothered me because we all wanted schools to be open. And they framed the issue as, you know, just stupid politicians damaged a generation of kids by, by closing schools. Um, so what, you know, there's a few issues here. Number one, you know, what would have happened if we had just allowed COVID to rip through the pediatric, you know, um, as we kind of basically did? You know, the answer is same as we've been discussing the whole time. Most kids would be just fine, but not all. And if they wanted schools to be open the whole time, I would have just liked for them to have sort of, again, thought through what that really implies, right? That that hundreds, if not thousands, you know, a couple thousand more children would have been dead potentially. And they need, they may say, hey, that's worth it. That, that, that's worth it. But they need to be open about that. But then when the virus closed schools all winter during the Omicron surge, when they were having to call in the National Guard to teach, when they were having to call in the guy mm-hmm. off the street to teach, um, there was silence. There was, you know, we don't want this to be true, so we will just pretend it is not happening. So they cannot claim the mantle of we want open schools while simultaneously dunking on vaccines, mass ventilation, everything. And, you know, they talk about nuance and they talk about trade-offs. 
and they just refuse to say what the consequences were. This is why you can read the entire work of Vinay Prasad. You can read the entire work of <laughs> oh, Marty and Thierry. You can read the entire work of Tracy Hogue uh, and, and these folks and not learn how many children have died of COVID this pandemic. They just will not say these numbers. They will say it's less than grandma. That's it. If, they, if there's something they don't want to be true, they become an ostrich. They put their head in the sand and they just refuse to share it. it it's, it's really uh, gross. I don't disgust you. I don't, it's, 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 uh, it is just really all of those things. Doctors shouldn't be that way. We should really try to communicate all the facts, whether we want them to be true or not. I didn't want vaccine myocarditis to be a thing. It really undermined some of my initial arguments about yeah. vaccinating kids. Um, but it was a thing, and I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't exist. Um, it's a small number, but small numbers still matter. So we, we just have to be honest about these things, even if we don't want them to be true. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's really important. It's one of the, I think, things that I've also appreciated your determination over the course of the pandemic to not just continue to be honest and be self-critical and, and be open about admitting error, um, but also for continuing to just push on this stuff. Because I think one thing that people, um, you know, struggle with when you're up against people who seem to have a boundless capacity for COVID minimization, like, as you were saying, you know, Vinay Prasad has an enormous body of work. I was trying to catch up on some of his recent YouTube videos to, um, you know, warm myself up for this interview, and it was physically painful. But it's just um, overwhelming sort of, you know, how much content these people produce. And I think it can be really discouraging for people because, as you're saying, there is this big power imbalance. There is a lot more attention that, you know, a very small minority of very vocal people are getting right now. And I think that can be really discouraging for people. And I appreciate that you've continued to push um, even when it's not, you know, the most pleasant or convenient thing to be doing. Well, thank you. So listen, I appreciate all the kind words. It's nice to know that people are reading what I write. It's very lonely just sitting by my computer every night, <laughs> writing, writing, writing. Uh, so it's nice to know that that uh, things are, are being read. And same to you guys, you know, I appreciate having allies who are here to amplify, you know, the, the, the message um, uh, that I that I, that I have to say, which again, is not a unique message. I'm not sort of, you know, I'm saying what 99% of doctors say. Um, and I have a feeling that if 99% per doctors, percent of doctors said, ah, eh, kids don't need vaccines, all of these doctors would be saying, are you kidding me? 1,700 kids have died. Of course they need vaccines. Uh, so I think it's just sort of contrarianism, different for the sake of being different. And I do my best to be right for the sake of being right, whether that puts me in the majority or the minority. Uh, that that's the secondary consequence or secondary concern. Well, thanks for coming in, walking through all of this in such depth. I really appreciate it. And uh, we will link to your recent uh, piece that I referenced at the beginning, which is the one that sort of breaks down some of these specific uh, comments from Prasad um, in the show notes of the episode. And if people want to follow you, they can find you on Twitter at uh, jhowardbrainmd. Dr. Howard, thank you so much again for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Always fun to talk to you. And listeners, if you'd like to support the show, become a patron. We do two episodes a week. This is the free one. If you'd like access to our Monday bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. 
And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. you're lying and exaggerating and it's going to be the same thing the 20 percent that wants to do it will do it and you're not flipping any votes you're not persuading anybody because you're laying it on a little thick and you're not being honest about it and in the process you're discrediting yourself to that you know five of us professors or maybe more than five who still actually believe that science and evidence have certain values and culture um, and still stand for that the last point i'll make the things we know about kids vaccines um is a very is is low. I mean, we just don't have a lot of knowledge about that. That is a man-made problem. That's a that's a person-made, human-made problem. We could have known more had we done bigger and better studies. We chose not to. Um, that may be done for political expediency. That's.